In Exodus 15, the children of Israel had just made their way out of Egypt. They had just been rescued from the land of Egypt after 430 years of oppression and slavery in Egypt. The Lord rescues them. He saves them. He does this through a series of ten plagues that are brought upon the land of Egypt that completely decimate uh, the mightiest nation on the earth at this time. And through the ten plagues, they also, the Lord also humiliates the gods of Egypt. These gods that were said to have great power and great control over the environment, over their economics, over life and death. The God of Israel humiliates the gods of Egypt, absolutely just destroys them. But then he leads them out of, is out of the land of Egypt and kind of has them stumble around in the wilderness for just a portion, just so it, it looks just enough like they have no clue what they're doing. And they encamp in a uh, position that strategically uh, is not very great. They put themselves in a very compromising position from uh, a military standpoint. And so Pharaoh sees this. He seeks to reclaim the children of Israel, and the Lord essentially lures Pharaoh into the Red Sea. God makes a way for his people to escape when there is no way, and then he destroys the armies of Pharaoh, giving the children of Israel great peace of mind, providing for them, showing his faithfulness that even when there's no way, the Lord makes a way. He's seeking to put his, his faithfulness on display and give them greater confidence. I mean, you can imagine if they had escaped the land of Egypt only to feel like, wow, well, you know, Pharaoh and his armies aren't that far away and they have conquered all of the world. But here the Lord destroys the armies of Pharaoh so that his people can rest in peace. God has rescued them. He has saved them. And now he brings them out into the wilderness he has already rescued them. He has already saved them. But he leads them out on the way to their promised land that he will give them. But it's this time in the wilderness that they will spend is for their sanctification. So that they might become like their God. The process of sanctification is one of being set apart, of becoming holy like God. And this is the process that all people who trust in Jesus for salvation go through. After we place our trust in him, after we recognize that he alone can save us, then it, we go through the process of being transformed into his character, into being a child of God. We, we go through this process of uh, shedding our old life and becoming not self-centered people, but Christ-centered people, wanting to be ruled over and reigned, uh, having Christ reign in our life. This is the process of sanctification. And so we see the need this morning for sanctification in the book of Exodus. And in, in this, these next couple passages, we'll see it through three incidents that kind of happen uh, in the wilderness. But we're just going to look at the first one today. And we're going to look at it in, in three phases for us to kind of understand this. Uh, if, if you're taking notes, you can follow along with these three things. The first, we're going to look at the bitterness 
of disappointment, dealing with bitterness, and then lastly, the abundance of God. The bitterness of disappointment, dealing with bitterness, and the abundance of God. So we read in verse 22, setting the scene for the bitterness of disappointment. Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness, and they found no water. Now, after three days of marching in the desert, they come to a place where things start to get real. Right, Because after three days of walking around when it's hot and just three days of walking period, you're just bummed out. Things are getting starting to, to kind of come to a climax here. And the reason that these things are coming to kind of this, this climax is because they're nearly out of water. Most likely they had filled up animal skins with water when they had left Egypt. They had prepared to bring some with them. And as they go on this journey, no doubt having some wisdom to ration their water and have a little bit and a little bit. After three days, this begins to run out. They're nearing the end of their supply, and no doubt some people had run out. Things are starting to look grim. They are in a hot, barren desert. They are going through just endless walking, physical labor for three days, two million plus people. After three days, I could see how this would start to be discouraging. They're out in the wilderness. Now, the wilderness is a hard place. It's a hard place to be in because every, everything is, is just, there's places that are full of danger, challenges. Uh, there are things that are difficult to handle in the wilderness. Moses was prepared in the wilderness. If you recall, he had already spent 40 years out in the wilderness as a shepherd. He had grown up in Egypt. After 40 years, he is on the run. He's a fugitive from justice as the people of Egypt are trying to kill him. He's out in the desert wandering around as a shepherd for 40 years. Likewise, our Savior, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, is driven out into the desert. He goes out into the desert for a time of preparation. You see, it's in the desert where God meets with his people. This is what Jesus purposed to do when he went out into the wilderness. He went out to spend time there. He went to prepare for his three years of ministry upon the earth. This process of rescuing and saving you and I. Moses, in his 40 years in the desert, at the end of that time, he ends up meeting God in the wilderness. In Exodus chapter 3, we looked at the story. There, probably so many times, Moses had passed by this bush out in the wilderness. But this time, something's different. The Lord speaks to him and says, Moses, I'm calling you. You've been out here in the wilderness learning to be humbled, to depend on me, learning how to navigate the dangers 
of the wild, and I'm going to call you to shepherd my people. You see, the wilderness is where God prepares his people, and this is what he will do with the children of Israel. In that time of trial, testing, God wants to refine them and show them where they need to grow and to help them grow in their faith. And as they faced trials, as they faced suffering, they would mature spiritually. Now, we often really don't like trials, because, like, let's just be real, they're not fun. We don't like suffering, it's uncomfortable. But all of our trials, all of our difficulties, our tribulation, our suffering are meant to teach us to depend on God alone. These difficulties in our lives are meant to point us to God's faithfulness and that we might build absolute confidence in God's faithfulness. Now, we only learn these lessons when we endure trials well. When we go through the trials trying to honor God and to obey him and to learn what God is teaching us in these difficult situations. But oftentimes, that's not how we respond. We run from trials. Things get difficult. We go for the easiest path, the quickest way out. But the way that we should go through trials is we should ask God to help us suffer well through trials not to get out of them. Because if you get out of a trial and you try to make it easy, then God just has to bring that around for you again. Then you have to go through it for longer. And that's not fun. You want to press into him and learn because he's going to keep serving up that same lesson to you until you get it. He's trying to grow us and mature us and sanctify us to make us like him. And so the more that we resist being like him, the more he keeps throwing that back in our path. Nope, here's what I'm trying to show you. Here's how you ought to be like me. We want to press into God during our trials. This is what James tells us in his uh, letter in chapter 1. He writes in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, patience. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, what James tells us here is that as we go through trials and we press into trials and we realize that in difficulty, in situations of hardship and suffering, when we, find, when, when we make Jesus our ultimate prize, and we don't try to get out of these things, when we make him our satisfaction, then it creates in us a maturing. And we become complete. We become a more together Christian. This is what we are trying to learn and grow in. This is what the children of Israel are going through in our text. In verse 23, we find out a little bit about the situation. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah, because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So finally, finally here, the children of Israel see water off in the distance. They, they catch a glimpse. 
They're determined now that they, they see it there. They move forward a little bit faster all of a sudden. And it's like everyone's tired. They get a second burst of energy. They start charging towards the water. They see it. It's within sight. They get to it. They can feel the water. It's cool to their skin under the desert heat. They can cup it in their hands. But as they bring it up to their mouth to taste it, it's revealed to be bitter water. Bitter water. It does not satisfy. They could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Now, the reason that they say that they call this place Mara is because Mara means bitter. That's, that's what it comes down to here. Now, this water that's bitter water, it looks clear. It looks like regular water, but it has uh, a large percentage of mineral salts in it. Um, and it doesn't just taste bad. It's undrinkable. It's bad for you. It could kill you. And I can imagine the disappointment that they would feel to see water, to feel it, to pour it upon their skin, but being unable to be satisfied with it as a drink. Their thirst could not be quenched with this water. You see, the children of Israel were expecting refreshing water. They were expecting to be satisfied here. This is what they wanted. But they were led to bitter waters. Now, remember, they were following the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. God was the one who brought them to these waters. It was God who led them to these bitter waters. Did God make a mistake? Does he not know what he's doing? These are surely the thoughts that the, the children of Israel had. Why would he do this? Why would he lead us to these waters that we could not drink? It's, it's even worse not having water, but being able to see water and not have it. It's there, we can touch it, we can see it, but we can't drink it. That's so much worse than just being like there's none in sight, we have nothing to do. We can't, we can't do anything about it. This is more of a tease. The Lord leads his people through this trial to these waters so that it might be revealed in their hearts the bitterness in their disappointment. They were faithless in a God who had demonstrated his faithfulness to them. God led them here so that they would see that they really aren't trusting him. He is faithful and he can provide for his people, but they did not want to recognize that. They wouldn't see that. He led them here so that their hearts would be exposed. He put them in a place of trial. He put them in a place where they would experience difficulty so that their hearts that they're hiding would be exposed. Look at their response in verse 24. The people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? They whine and they grumble against Moses. Now, 
That's not such a bad thing if it's just like, hey, Moses, like maybe you got lost in the desert. But as we saw, uh, as we saw earlier, Moses represents God to the people. And so they're not just grumbling against Moses. They're grumbling against the Lord. You see, this is how disappointment works. Often, we think that we know what is best. We know what we want. We know what we deserve. In fact, often we have a sense of entitlement. And if we don't get what we want, then we're disappointed. We get angry. We get bitter. If we don't deal with it correctly, it turns into bitterness. And perhaps there, that's a place that you're in this morning. Perhaps you're dealing with disappointment. Someone or something has let you down. Or maybe it's already been so rooted in your heart that you've become bitter. The trial, the hardship that you've experienced, the relationship that you had hope in, someone has let you down. Feel like the Lord's let you down. The Lord wants to show you that he's working in a much more complete way than you realize. He is doing a much larger work. He wants to show you his faithfulness. Now, God has just delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, but they seem to forgot, have forgotten this already. Like, it's only a couple days ago. Three days have gone by, and they've forgotten all the wondrous works of the Lord. And here they don't believe, and they confess this with their whining. They do not believe that God will take care of them. They do not have trust in God's faithfulness. Right? It's kind of appropriate that they're called the children of Israel because children are great at whining. Like, they are just killer at whining. And it's not until children mature that they learn how to be content. They learn how to navigate. So we can identify with this because realistically... A lot of times when we're disappointed, we're whiners. We grumble and we complain. When we fail, when you and I fail to trust in the faithfulness of God, it puts resentment and bitterness in our hearts. And God wants to remove this bitterness from our hearts. That's why he's led the children of Israel, why he's let us be in these situations of trial. We've been brought to the bitter water so that our hearts, our disappointment, the bitterness that we're hiding would be revealed. Now in verse 25, we see how we ought to deal with disappointment and bitterness. We read, He cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. The first thing that Moses does, he is someone who is tested in the wilderness. He knows the faithfulness of God. He cries out to the Lord. If you're dealing with disappointment, if you're dealing with bitterness, 
you have resentment in your heart, it starts off here, crying out to the Lord. Now, let's be clear about some things. It's not sinful to bring God your problems. It's not. In fact, we're invited in Scripture to do this. One verse, uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He invites us in prayer to confess the things that are, are ailing us, that we're dealing with, the things that we're worried about, to share those things with him. He invites us to talk these things through with him in prayer. However, this is not what the children of Israel are doing. They're not asking the Lord to work. They are having a complaining spirit, a grumbling spirit. And they're complaining about God rather than talking to God about their problems. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, we read, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We're told as God's people who have been redeemed by him that we should share, that we should cast our cares upon him because he cares for us, but we should live in a way where we are doing this without grumbling or disputing, complaining. We don't complain about God. We talk with God about our issues. We don't talk about him. It's sinful to have a complaining spirit, a grumbling spirit. It's destructive, both to the person who's complaining to the church community, to the watching world. We're told here in Philippians chapter 2 that the world is watching. Your life should be without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. When things are broken, when things are messed up, this, his people, should reflect his character. When we respond to trials, to difficulty, to suffering correctly, Now, the second thing that Moses does here to deal with this bitterness is he remembers God's faithfulness. He has done what the children of Israel have not. He remembers that God has saved him. He remembers that God's record is perfect. So if you're dealing with bitterness, you're dealing with, with disappointment, you need to remember that God is faithful. God is faithful. His record is perfect. He is undefeated in his faithfulness perfect record. The children of Israel had no reason to doubt him, and you and I have no reason either. God had already answered their prayers to be rescued from oppression in Egypt, to be rescued at the Red Sea. He's already responded and shown them how powerful he is. And more than that, he's already demonstrated his power over water. He turned the, the Nile River from water to blood He's part of the Red Sea. Water is not an issue for the God of Israel. This is, this is like, this is easy. Water that you can't drink. It's not, 
seems like way easier than moving, you know, parting a sea and making it dry so millions of people can walk across. They have forgotten God's faithfulness. Now, all they have to do is ask, but they don't ask. All they had to do is say, Lord, the water is bitter, and we need you to provide for us. But they don't. They say, what are we supposed to do with this? Why did you lead us here? Why did you bring us to this place? They don't, they don't even give it a second to say, like, here's an issue, Lord. Fix this problem. There is something broken in my life. There's an issue that I'm dealing with, that I'm overwhelmed with, that it doesn't seem like there's a way out. And in times past, you have made a way when there is no way. Your faithfulness has been proven. I want to trust in your... They don't, they don't even go there. They just begin to complain. Now, the third thing in dealing with disapproval, bitterness that Moses does here. He waits for the salvation of the Lord. That's it, right? The steps are simple. Cry out to the Lord. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Remember God's faithfulness. And then you wait for the Lord to do his thing. Right? Moses didn't have any other like sweet ideas, like what am I supposed to do about this? It's only God who can work to change things. God works in specific ways, and he, he does things for specific reasons. And here he's done this to reveal the bitterness of his people, but he's also done it to show his faithfulness. In verse 25, the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So Moses, he waits on the Lord, and the Lord gives him direction. He prays, he waits. The Lord says, hey, there's a tree over there. It's fallen over. Why don't you take that tree, toss it into the waters. Put that tree into the water of bitterness. And when Moses threw this, threw this tree into the water, the water became pure without bitterness. It became sweet to their taste. And they were able to drink and be satisfied. Now, scholars and archaeologists have always been interested in this kind of passage. And they have tried and tried and tried to find a native tree that would be responsible for such a chemical change. And like, okay, like what is this crazy tree that has some fancy ability to, you can throw it in there, at what ratio amount does it like neutralize these pH levels and make it, like they've done tons and tons of research, but they have been unable to locate such a tree. They've been unable to do it. Because that's not the point of the passage. That's not the point of what God is doing here. The chemical reaction is not the focus of the text. The main point is that the tree was God's tree. It belonged to him. It was his instruction. It was his work through the tree that provided pure water, that removed the bitterness. I don't know what tree it was. The scholars don't know what tree it was. Archaeologists don't know what tree it was. 
doesn't matter. The point is that it belonged to God. It was his tree. It was his instruction. He told Moses, you want to get rid of that bitterness? Push the tree into the middle of it, and it'll get fixed. Now, if you've been following along with our with the trajectory of our church for any time, you know that this tree ultimately points us to the ultimate tree of God's faithfulness, the cross. This is how you get rid of bitterness, how you get rid of difficulty in resentment. This is how you remove disappointment. When people have failed you, when things have failed you, the things that you thought you could trust in, you inject the cross into the middle of it. Christ's work, what he has done for you and for I, he's brought acceptance to us. He's given us new life in him. He has removed that bitterness when we find new life in him. The cross always brings healing. We put it right in the middle of all the problems and it brings healing. Now, this isn't the last tree that we find in scripture. We find the last tree in Revelation chapter 22. If you want to flip over there, you'll, you'll see with me. There's one more tree that we find. And this tree goes through the middle of a city, the middle of the street of the city, next to a river of cool, refreshing water. It's the tree of life, we find, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 2. This tree of life, it tells us in verse 2, or, uh, yeah, in verse 2, has 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. And it leaves us with a little description there of note at the end. And it, it says, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. We desperately need healing for the nations. We look to the time where all nations will have healing in the cross. We wait in expectation for that time where God will set all things right. You know, we have the example of, we have the example of the children of Israel and what they've been dealing with here. We have the example of their trial, their suffering, their difficulty. We, ha we see how you should have respond. You should respond to, to dealing with disappointment, to bitterness. Crying out to the Lord. Laying your anxieties, your worries, your fears at his feet. Remembering God's faithfulness. Who he is, what he has done, who he calls you and I as we place our trust in Christ for salvation. And waiting on him to work. 
throwing the cross into the midst of the bitterness. That's how you avoid having that bitterness. We've seen this demonstrated through our text. But we've seen this, if, you, if you've not been following along, we've seen this demonstrated beautifully this week through this terrible tragedy in Charleston. If you're not aware, I don't know how you could be unaware, but as the members of Emmanuel AME Church were meeting for Bible study in a small group, much like you and I are meeting here this morning, they had uh, this um, young white fellow who was racist, who had an agenda come in and sit in their midst, who sat with them and heard them for an hour, sat through their Bible study and gunned down nine people at the end. A terrible tragedy. Heartbreaking. And this fellow who did this, this uh, man with this racist manifesto, he, didn't, he doesn't even uh, deny it. He comes out and he confessed that he did it. Complete anger and animosity in his heart. But the nation has watched. They have seen the response of this church and these people, and they just responded in the most Christ-like way. This is the ultimate opportunity for bitterness. This is the ultimate opportunity for disappointment, for anger, both at God and at this, uh, this man who did this, who acted in such an evil way. This is the ultimate opportunity for that. But the, the members of the church, they were able to speak to this man at the bond hearing. They were able to offer words to him, to say whatever they wanted in the courtroom. And the words that they communicated we're not outrage and anger. Sure, they said that what you did was hateful. And they named that crime. They named that this was a terrible, horrible, racist act. They did name forth his sin and what he did. Surely they did not ignore that, nor did the court ignore it. But instead of getting bitter, what they had done was they told him to his face, I forgive you. And our church forgives you. The families of the, the people who were gunned down, one by one, spoke to him and said, I forgive you. We forgive you collectively. They had tons of reasons to be angry. And not only did they forgive him, but some of the members also said, and you too can be forgiven by Christ. You can repent. They asked him to repent. They gave him opportunity and said, you can be reconciled to Jesus. You can change. This was a wonderful Christ-like demonstration that put this on display for us in the news and in the watching world in a way that this text does not. It's one thing to run out of water, but it's another thing to have nine of your uh, church members, your family gunned down, and then respond in that way. 
No one would have blamed them if they had responded in anger. No one would have said, you know what, like, we get it. This was a terrible, unjust act. And no doubt they're grieving and no doubt that they did have anger. But the reason that it seems that they're able to avoid this bitterness, they're, they're, they're able to avoid this is because they have injected the cross into their lives. These people know and enjoy Jesus. And you know what they said was like, we're not going to close our doors. And the other AME churches have likewise said, we're not going to close our doors. The point of the church is to welcome the outsider, to welcome them in so they can come in and they can meet Jesus and be changed. Friends, that is the gospel. They are living out sanctified lives, what Jesus has done and demonstrated, and that he was willing to give his own life. Their wonderful demonstration has shown us how we ought to operate. We need to learn from this situation and learn from them. It's a wonderful opportunity. If you, if you want to read more about it, and I urge you to read this article, it's in the journal, Wall Street Journal. Uh, it's called A Bow to Charleston. There's probably plenty of articles, but this is a great one. I'll, I'll, I'll send it out later uh, on the church Twitter. It's called A Bow to Charleston. Kind of describes some of this. But what this is, it's the, it's the people of God changed by the power of God the cross being injected into their lives so that way when they come to Philippians 2.14, they do their bond hearing without grumbling or complaining because Christ has changed them. And then they go forth blameless and innocent and they are recognized by the world as children of God. They are recognized by the world as children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation because they shine as lights in the world, because they are Christ-like. They have every opportunity to complain, but they did not. Friends, we are dealing with disappointment and bitterness that is not on that level that they're dealing with. And if they can forgive, the Lord can work in your heart to deal with whatever bitterness and disappointment you're dealing with. He can change you, he can transform you, inject the cross of Christ into that bitterness and it will make that it will turn that bitter water into pure sweet water so let's remember to be praying for the the people of Charleston and Emmanuel AME church i mean they're dealing with just a crazy situation we want to be allies with them and and name you know what happened and call out those racist activities we want to join them in their mission to help people meet Jesus. It's clear that that's what they're doing. I mean, I'm blown away by their response. Uh, and I encourage you to read more about it. Now we see in verse 25, the Lord makes a small covenant with his people, a reminder of his faithfulness. It says, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. See, it was at Marah, the waters of bitterness, that God had tested them. And he wanted them to know 
that even when they came to places of terrible disappointment, that he was still doing something. He was able to provide for them, that he would, in fact, be faithful. And so he makes this small covenant with them. He sets out the terms of their relationship. He asks them, in short, to trust him and to obey him. And he asked the children of Israel to remember his faithfulness. Remember his faithfulness to them and to obey his commandments. Now the covenant that the children of Israel have with the Lord here is not for their salvation. They've already been rescued. It's for their sanctification. So they might mature spiritually and grow and reflect his character. The covenant essentially is put in place to help them live for his glory, to reflect that character. Now, a part of the covenant, there are consequences. There is blessing and a curse. There would be consequences whether they obeyed or not. If they obeyed, they would grow, they would mature, they would be blessed. But if they did not obey, if they did not see God's faithfulness and remember that and they sought to do their own thing, they would be subject to the same things that they witnessed in Israel, or I mean in Egypt, excuse me. They would be subject to God proving his faithfulness to them again in that way. Destroying all of their idols. What God's doing with his people, you and me, is helping us grow in our confidence in him. And so for his people, he reminds them, he gives them a, a marker. He reveals one of his divine names to them in, in this. He finishes off saying, if you, if you listen, then you will avoid the diseases that I put on Egypt. He says, for I am the Lord, your healer. Now, God has been revealing himself to Israel throughout their history. In Exodus 3, he is called I am, the becoming one. He is self-existent, self-eternal. He has never not existed. He is able to become exactly what his people need. He has revealed himself as the God who hears. He has revealed himself as the God who rescues. He has revealed himself as the God who provides. And now here for his people, he tells them, I am the Lord, your healer. At Marah, the waters of bitterness, God uses the bitter water to provoke forth the bitter hearts of his people. Because he's interested in healing their hearts. The psalmist reflects on this in Psalm 103. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. See how he likens like iniquity, our sin, to these diseases? He forgives these things. He heals us from our bitter hearts, our difficulties, our sin that we hide within our hearts. The Lord helps his people deal with their bitterness, their disappointment, because he is the healer. Now, lastly, we come to verse 27, and we see the abundance of God. Stick with me. We're almost done. <clears throat> they came to Elim, 
where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Now the children of Israel come to a wonderful uh, resting place, this like lush kind of oasis. They do business with God at Marah, but they do not stay there. God leads them there, but he doesn't have them camp there. He does what he needs to do, and then he moves them on to this new space. They had to learn about God's character, about his faithfulness at Marah. It was there that they built their faith, but God had a place of rest for them up ahead. Now, Elam was known as a place of abundance. It was connected uh, with this wadi called Garandel, which kind of sounds like a uh, Lord of the Rings location, right? Garandel. I'm just going to go with it. And this was an oasis in, uh, in northern Sinai. And it showed how, a, 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 if you don't know what a, like a wadi is, it's essentially kind of like a ravine that would collect a ton of water when it rains. And so it's sort of like a riverbed. But it, we, we're, it's clear from our text here that the amount of large trees show that it had pretty much a limitless supply of, of water that they would need. Able to sustain life in the middle of the wilderness. Now, more than that, we have specific numbers that are assigned to this by Moses. There are 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees. In the Bible, numbers are often uh, symbolic. 12 and 70 both have uh, an association with fullness or with blessing. Um, and so here we're told there are 12 springs. To the future readers of Exodus, they would see this, 12 springs, one for each tribe of Israel. Our God is a faithful God who provides more than enough for all of our people. Seventy palm trees, one for each of Israel's elders. As they see this as a future generation, as they look back at God's acts in history, they would see our God is a faithful God. He's not only provided for us when things were tight, but he's brought us to a place where there is not just enough, there's an abundance of what we need. There's plenty for everybody. God is not only invested in his people's survival, he wants them to flourish. He doesn't want you and I just to kind of get by, just what you need. As we trust in him, he brings us more than what we need. He provides more than what we need. We see that Jesus is the one who provides the water for his people. If, you're, if you still got your finger in Revelation 22, we'll read this last verse. Revelation twenty two seventeen. Jesus tells, he calls out and he says, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Jesus has more than enough. Whoever wishes, this water that satisfies, every single person who comes to Jesus will discover that he is deeply satisfying. He is the one that will provide that ultimate joy, ultimate rest. He is our rock, our strength, our shield, our refuge. When we inject the cross into our lives, when we inject it into those moments of disappointment, bitterness, resentment, 
hardship, suffering. There we find satisfaction because Jesus never fails. God's faithfulness is on display at the cross, that he was willing to give his own son for his people. That's how far he was willing to go. So when you, don't, when you feel like, maybe God's not really caring about me, maybe he doesn't see my situation, be reminded he was willing to give his own son so that you and I might have new life. It's a wonderful, faithful God. And as he is such, let's respond together and worship. Let's close together as we lift our voices and our hands to him. Lord, we're thankful for your kindness. Lord, even though it didn't look kind to the children of Israel as you led them to the, the waters at Marah, you took to them to a place, Lord, that at first look wasn't going to meet their needs, Lord, but you, know, you knew that they had deeper needs, bitterness, disappointment in their hearts. And you led them there so that they might be changed and transformed, that they might grow in their knowledge of your faithfulness. And Lord, we have seen your faithfulness over time. Lord, you've never failed any of us. And Lord, we want to proclaim our trust in you, our faithfulness. Help us to grow in that as we look to you. Lord, we pray that you would use... Um, these seasons of difficulty and suffering for your glory. We pray, Lord, that um, you would advance, Lord, your work in the world through this terrible tragedy in Charleston. Lord, we pray that you would bring many people to salvation. They would meet you because of the testimony and the witness of your church. We pray that you would bring racial reconciliation uh, in the South, in South Carolina in our nation, in our relationships, uh, Lord, even in this city, that you would do uh, a good work, Lord, as we inject the cross into it, and as we learn from Jesus. Pray that you would strengthen uh, that church, the AME church, Lord, as they seek to recover from this, Lord, we pray that you would be more than enough for them. Lord, and we're thankful that although they grieve, Lord, that they do not grieve without hope and that they've found identity in you. Comfort your people. We love you. Amen.